Chapter 4 Another Descendant 10. Gladia had tried to relax after the harrowing session with Mandamus, and did so with an intensity that fought relaxation to the death. She had opacified all the windows in her bedroom, adjusted the environment to a gentle warm breeze with the faint sound of rustling leaves and the occasional soft warble of a distant bird. She had then shifted it to the sound of a far-off surf and had added a faint but unmistakable tang of the sea in the air. It didn't help. Her mind echoed helplessly with what had just been and with what was soon to come. Why had she chattered so freely to Mandamus? What business was it of his, or of Amadero's for that matter, whether she had visited Elijah in orbit or not, and whether or not, or when, she had had a son by him or by any other man? She had been cast into imbalance by Mandamus's claim of descent. That's what it was. In a society where no one cared about descent or relationship, except for medico-genetic reasons, its sudden intrusion into a conversation was bound to be upsetting. That and the repeated, but surely accidental, references to Elijah. She decided she was finding excuses for herself, and in impatience she tossed it all away. She had reacted badly and had babbled like a baby, and that was all there was to it. Now there was this settler coming. He was not an earthman. He had not been born on earth, she was sure, and it was quite possible that he had never even visited earth. His people might have lived on a strange world she had never heard of, and might have done so for generations. That would make him a spacer, she thought. Spacers were descended from earthmen, too, centuries further back, but what did that matter? To be sure, spacers were long-lived, and these settlers must be short-lived, but how much of a distinction was that? Even a spacer might die prematurely through some freak accident. She had once heard of a spacer who had died a natural death before he was sixty. Why not, then, think of the next visitor as a spacer with an unusual accent? But it wasn't that simple. No doubt the settler did not feel himself to be a spacer. It's not what you are that counts, but what you feel yourself to be. So think of him as a settler, not a spacer. Yet weren't all human beings simply human beings, no matter what name you applied to them? Spacers, settlers, aurorans, earth people. The proof of it was that robots could do no injury to any of them. The Neil would spring as quickly to the defense of the most ignorant earthman as to the chairman of the auroran council, and that meant... She could feel herself drifting, actually relaxing into a shallow sleep, when a sudden thought entered her mind and seemed to ricochet there. Why was the settler named Bailey? Her mind sharpened and snapped out of the welcoming coils of oblivion that had all but engulfed her. Why Bailey? Perhaps it was simply a common name among the settlers. After all, it was Elijah who had made it all possible, and he had to be a hero to them, as... as... She could not think of an analogous hero to Aurorans. Who had led the expedition that first reached Aurora? who had supervised the terraformation of the raw, barely living world that Aurora had then been. She did not know. Was her ignorance born of the fact that she had been brought up on Solaria, or was it that the Aurorans simply had no founding hero? After all, the first expedition to Aurora had consisted of mere Earth people. It was only in later generations, with lengthening lifespans, thanks to the adjustments of sophisticated bioengineering, that Earth people had become Aurorans. 
And after that, why should Aurorans wish to make heroes of their despised predecessors? But settlers might make heroes of Earth people. They had not yet changed, perhaps. They might change eventually, and then Elijah would be forgotten in embarrassment. But till then, that must be it. Probably half the settlers alive had adopted the Bailey surname. Poor Elijah. Everyone crowding onto his shoulders and into his shadow. Poor Elijah. Dear Elijah. And she did fall asleep. Eleven. The sleep was too restless to restore her to calm, let alone good humor. She was scowling without knowing that she was, and had she seen herself in the mirror, she would have been taken aback by her middle-aged appearance. Daniil, to whom Gladia was a human being, regardless of age, appearance, or mood, said, Madam, Gladia interrupted with a small shiver, Is the settler here? She looked up at the clock ribbon on the wall, and then made a quick gesture, in response to which Daniil at once adjusted the heat upward. It had been a cool day, and was going to be a cooler evening. Daniil said, He is, madam. Where have you put him? In the main guest room, madam. Giscard is with him, and the household robots are all within call. I hope they will have the judgment to find out what he expects to eat for lunch. I don't know settler cuisine, and I hope they can make some reasonable attempt to meet his requests. I am sure, madam, that Giscard will handle the matter competently. Gladia was sure of that, too, but she merely snorted. At least it would have been a snort if Gladia were the sort of person who snorted. She didn't think she was. I presume, she said, he's been in appropriate quarantine before being allowed to land. It would be inconceivable for him not to have been, madam. She said, just the same, I'll wear my gloves and my nose filter. She stepped out of her bedroom, was distantly aware that there were household robots about her, and made the sign that would get her a new pair of gloves and a fresh nose filter. Every establishment had its own vocabulary of signs, and every human member of an establishment cultivated those signs, learning to make them both rapidly and unnoticeably. A robot was expected to follow these unobtrusive orders of its human overlords as though it read minds, and it followed that a robot could not follow the orders of non-establishment human beings except by careful speech. Nothing would humiliate a human member of an establishment more than to have one of the robots of the establishment hesitate in fulfilling an order, or worse, fulfill it incorrectly. That would mean that the human being had fumbled a sign, or that the robot had. Generally, Gladia knew, it was the human being who was at fault, but in virtually every case this was not admitted. It was the robot who was handed over for an unnecessary response analysis or unfairly put up for sale. Gladia had always felt that she would never fall into that trap of wounded ego, yet if at that moment she had not received her gloves and nose filter, she would have... She did not have to finish the thought. The nearest robot brought her what she wanted, correctly and with speed. Gladia adjusted the nose filter and snuffled a bit to make sure it was properly seated. She was in no mood to risk infection with any foul disorder that had survived the painstaking treatment during quarantine. She said, What does he look like, Daniil? Daniil said, He is of ordinary stature and measurements, madam. I mean his face. 
It was silly to ask. If he showed any family resemblance to Elijah Bailey, Daniil would have noticed it as quickly as she herself would have, and he would have remarked upon it. That is difficult to say, madam. It is not in plain view. What does that mean? Surely he's not masked, Daniil. In a way, he is, madam. His face is covered with hair. Hair? She found herself laughing. You mean after the fashion of the hypervision historicals? Beards? She made little gestures indicating a tuft of hair on the chin and another under the nose. Rather more than that, madam. Half his face is covered. Gladia's eyes opened wide, and for the first time she felt a surge of interest in seeing him. What would a face with hair all over it look like? Aurora nails, and spacer males generally, had very little facial hair, and what there was would be removed permanently by the late teens, during virtual infancy. Sometimes the upper lip was left untouched. Gladia remembered that her husband, Santerix Grimianus, before their marriage, had had a thin line of hair under his nose. A mustache, he had called it. It had looked like a misplaced and peculiarly misshapen eyebrow, and once she had resigned herself to accepting him as husband, she had insisted he destroy the follicles. He had done so with scarcely a murmur, and it occurred to her now, for the first time, to wonder if he had missed the hair. It seemed to her that she had noticed him on occasion in those early years, lifting a finger to his upper lip. She had thought it a nervous poking at a vague itch, and it was only now that it occurred to her that he had been searching for a mustache that was gone forever. How would a man look with a mustache all over his face? Would he be bear-like? How would it feel? What if women had such hair, too? She thought of a man and woman trying to kiss and having trouble finding each other's mouths. She found the thought funny, in a harmlessly ribald way, and laughed out loud. She felt her petulance disappearing and actually looked forward to seeing the monster. After all, there would be no need to fear him, even if he were as animal in behavior as he was in appearance. He would have no robot of his own. Settlers were supposed to have a non-robotic society, and she would be surrounded by a dozen. The monster would be immobilized in a split second if he made the slightest suspicious move, or if he as much as raised his voice in anger. She said with perfect good humor, Take me to him, Daniil. Twelve. The monster rose. He said something that sounded like, Good afternoon, Miletti. She at once caught the good afternoon, but it took her a moment to translate the last word into my lady. Gladia absently said, Good afternoon. She remembered the difficulty she had had understanding Auroran pronunciation of galactic standard in those long-ago days when, a frightened young woman, she had come to the planet from Solaria. The monster's accent was uncouth. Or did it just sound uncouth because her ear was unaccustomed to it? Elijah, she remembered, had seemed to voice his K's and P's, but spoke pretty well otherwise. Nineteen and a half decades had passed, however, and this settler was not from Earth. Language, in isolation, underwent changes. But only a small portion of Gladia's mind was on the language problem. She was staring at his beard. It was not in the least like the beards that actors wore in historical dramas. Those always seemed tufted, a bit here, a bit there, looking gluey and glossy. The settler's beard was different. It covered his cheeks and chin evenly, thickly, and deeply. 
It was a dark brown, somewhat lighter and wavier than the hair on his head, and at least two inches long, she judged. Evenly long. It didn't cover his whole face, which was rather disappointing. His forehead was totally bare, except for his eyebrows, as were his nose and his under-eye regions. His upper lip was bare, too, but it was shadowed as though there was the beginning of new growth upon it. There was additional bareness just under the lower lip, but with new growth less marked and concentrated mostly under the middle portion. Since both his lips were quite bare, it was clear to Gladia that there would be no difficulty in kissing him. She said, knowing that staring was impolite, and staring even so, It seems to me you remove the hair from about your lips. Yes, my lady. Why, if I may ask? You may ask, for hygienic reasons. I don't want food catching in the hairs. You scrape it off, don't you? I see it's growing again. I use a facial laser. It takes 15 seconds after waking. Why not depilate and be done with it? I might want it to grow back. Why? Aesthetic reasons, my lady. This time Gladia did not grasp the word. It sounded like acidic or possibly ascetic. She said, Pardon me? The settler said, I might grow tired of the way I look now and want to grow the hair on the upper lip again. Some women like it, you know, and the settler tried to look modest and failed. I have a fine mustache when I grow it. She said, suddenly grasping the word, You mean aesthetic? The settler laughed, showing fine white teeth, and said, You talk funny, too, my lady. Gladia tried to look haughty, but melted into a smile. Proper pronunciation was a matter of local consensus. She said, You ought to hear me with my Salarian accent, if it comes to that. Then it would be aesthetic raisons. The R rolled interminably. I've been places where they talk a little bit like that. It sounds barbarous. He rolled both R's phenomenally in the last word. Gladia chuckled. You do it with the tip of your tongue. It's got to be with the sides of the tongue. No one but a Salarian can do it correctly. Perhaps you can teach me. A trader like myself who's been everywhere hears all kinds of linguistic perversions. Again he tried to roll the R's of the last word, choked slightly and coughed. See, you'll tangle your tonsils and you'll never recover. She was still staring at his beard, and now she could curb her curiosity no longer. She reached toward it. The settler flinched and started back, then realizing her intention was still. Gladia's hand, all but invisibly gloved, rested lightly on the left side of his face. The thin plastic that covered her fingers did not interfere with the sense of touch, and she found the hair to be soft and springy. It's nice, she said with evident surprise. Widely admired, said the settler, grinning. She said, But I can't stand here and manhandle you all day. Ignoring his predictable, you can as far as I'm concerned, she went on. Have you told my robots what you would like to eat? My lady, I told them what I now tell you. Whatever's handy. I've been on a score of worlds in the last year, and each has its own dietary. A trader learns to eat everything that isn't actually toxic. I'd prefer an Auroran meal to anything you would try to make in imitation of Bailey World. Bailey World? said Gladia sharply, a frown returning to her face. Named for the leader of the first expedition to the planet, 
or to any of the settled planets, for that matter, Ben Bailey. The son of Elijah Bailey? Yes, the settler said, and changed the subject at once. He looked down at himself and said with a trace of petulance, How do you people manage to stand these clothes of yours? Slick and puffy. Be glad to get into my own again. I'm sure you will have your chance to do so soon enough. But for now, please come and join me at lunch. I was told your name was Bailey, by the way, like your planet. Not surprising. It's the most honored name on the planet, naturally. I'm D.G. Bailey. They had walked into the dining room, Giscard preceding them, Daniil following them, each moving into his appropriate wall niche. Other robots were already in their niches, and two emerged to do the serving. The room was bright with sunshine, the walls were alive with decoration, the table was set, and the odor of the food was enticing. The settler sniffed and let his breath out in satisfaction. I don't think I'll have any trouble at all eating Auroran food. Where would you like me to sit, my lady? A robot said at once, If you would sit here, sir. The settler sat down, and then Gladia, the privileges of the guests satisfied, took her own seat. D.G., she said, I do not know the nomenclatural peculiarities of your world, so excuse me if my question is offensive. Wouldn't D.G. be a feminine name? Not at all, said the settler a bit stiffly. In any case, it is not a name, it is a pair of initials. Fourth letter of the alphabet and the seventh. Oh, said Gladia, enlightened. D.G. Bailey. And what do the initials stand for, if you'll excuse my curiosity? Certainly. There's D, for certain, he said, jerking his thumb toward one of the wall niches. And I suspect that one may be G. He jerked his thumb toward another. You don't mean that, said Gladia faintly. But I do. My name is Daniil Giscard Bailey. In every generation, my family has had at least one Daniil, or one Giscard, in its multiplying batches. I was the last of six children but the first boy. My mother felt that was enough, and made up for having but one son by giving me both names. That made me Daniil Giscard Bailey, and the double load was too great for me. I prefer D.G. as my name, and I'd be honored if you used it. He smiled genially. I'm the first to bear both names, and I'm also the first to see the grand originals. But why those names? It was Ancestor Elijah's idea, according to the family story. He had the honor of naming his grandsons, and he named the oldest Daniil, while the second was named Giscard. He insisted on those names, and that established the tradition. And the daughters? The traditional name from generation to generation is Jezebel, Jesse, Elijah's wife, you know. I know. There are no. He caught himself and transferred his attention to the dish that had been placed before him. If this were Bailey World, I would say this was a slice of roast pork and that it was smothered in peanut sauce. Actually, it is a vegetable dish, D.G. What you were about to say was that there are no gladias in the family. There aren't, said D.G. calmly. One explanation is that Jesse, the original Jesse, would have objected, but I don't accept that. Elijah's wife, the ancestress, never came to Bailey World, you know. Never left Earth. How could she have objected? No, to me it's pretty certain that the ancestor wanted no other gladia. No imitations, no copies, no pretense. One gladia, 
unique. He asked that there be no later Elijah either. Gladia was having trouble eating. I think your ancestor spent the latter portion of his life trying to be as unemotional as Daniil. Just the same, he had romantic notions under his skin. He might have allowed other Elijahs and Gladius. It wouldn't have offended me, certainly, and I imagine it wouldn't have offended his wife, either. She laughed tremulously. D.G. said, All this doesn't seem real, somehow. The ancestor is practically ancient history. He died 164 years ago. I'm his descendant in the seventh generation, yet here I am sitting with a woman who knew him when he was quite young. I didn't really know him, said Gladius, staring at her plate. I saw him, rather briefly, on three separate occasions over a period of seven years. I know. The ancestor's son, Ben, wrote a biography of him, which is one of the literary classics of Bailey World. Even I have read it. Indeed. I haven't read it. I didn't even know it existed. What... What does it say about me? D.G. seemed amused. Nothing you would object to. You come out very well. But never mind that. What I'm amazed at is that here we are together across seven generations. How old are you, my lady? Is it fair to ask the question? I don't know that it's fair, but I have no objection to it. In galactic standard years, I am 233 years old. Over 23 decades. You look as though you were no more than in your late 40s. The ancestor died at the age of 79, an old man. I'm 39. And when I die, you will still be alive. If I avoid death by misadventure. And will continue to live perhaps five decades beyond. Do you envy me, D.G.? said Gladia with an edge of bitterness in her voice. Do you envy me for having survived Elijah by over sixteen decades? And for being condemned to survive him ten decades more, perhaps? Of course I envy you, came the composed answer. Why not? I would have no objection to living for several centuries, were it not that I would be setting a bad example to the people of Bailey World. I wouldn't want them to live that long as a general thing. The pace of historical and intellectual advance would then become too slow. Those at the top would stay in power too long. Bailey World would sink into conservatism and decay, as your world has done. Gladius' small chin lifted. Aurora is doing quite well, you'll find. I'm speaking of your world, Solaria. Gladia hesitated, then said firmly, Solaria is not my world. D.G. said, I hope it is. I came to see you because I believe Solaria is your world. If that is why you came to see me, you are wasting your time, young man. You were born on Solaria, weren't you? And lived there a while? I lived there for the first three decades of my life, about an eighth of my lifetime. Then that makes you enough of a Solarian to be able to help me in a matter that is rather important. I am not a Solarian, despite this so-called important matter. It is a matter of war and peace, if you call that important. The spacer worlds face war with the settler worlds, and things will go badly for all of us if it comes to that. And it is up to you, my lady, to prevent that war and to ensure peace. Thirteen. The meal was done. It had been a small one, and Gladia found herself looking at D.G. in a coldly furious way. 
She had lived quietly for the last twenty decades, peeling off the complexities of life. Slowly, she had forgotten the misery of Solaria and the difficulties of adjustment to Aurora. She had managed to bury quite deeply the agony of two murders and the ecstasy of two strange loves, with a robot and with an Earthman, and to get well past it all. She had ended by spinning out a long, quiet marriage, having two children and working at her applied art of costumery. And eventually the children had left, then her husband, and soon she might be retiring even from her work. Then she would be alone with her robots, content with, or rather resigned to, letting life glide quietly and uneventfully to a slow close in its own time. A close so gentle she might not be aware of the ending when it came. It was what she wanted. Then what was happening? It had begun the night before when she looked up vainly at the starlit sky to see Solaria's star, which was not in the sky and would not have been visible to her if it were. It was as though this one foolish reaching for the past, a past that should have been allowed to remain dead, had burst the cool bubble she had built about herself. First, the name of Elijah Bailey, the most joyously painful memory of all the ones she had so carefully brushed away, had come up again and again in a grim repetition. She was then forced to deal with a man who thought, mistakenly, he might be a descendant of Elijah in the fifth degree, and now with another man who actually was a descendant in the seventh degree. Finally, she was now being given problems and responsibilities similar to those that had plagued Elijah himself on various occasions. Was she becoming Elijah in a fashion, with none of his talent, and none of his fierce dedication to duty at all costs? What had she done to deserve it? She felt her rage being buried under a flood tide of self-pity. She felt unjustly dealt with. No one had the right to unload responsibility on her against her will. She said, forcing her voice level, Why do you insist on my being a Solarian when I tell you that I am not a Solarian? Dee did not seem disturbed by the chill that had now entered her voice. He was still holding the soft napkin that had been given him at the conclusion of the meal. It had been damply hot, not too hot, and he had imitated the actions of Gladia in carefully wiping his hands and mouth. He had then doubled it over and stroked his beard with it. It was shredding now and shriveling. He said, I presume it will vanish altogether. It will. Gladia had deposited her own napkin in the appropriate receptacle on the table. Holding it was unmannerly and could be excused only by D.G.'s evident unfamiliarity with civilized custom. There are some who think it has a polluting effect on the atmosphere, but there is a gentle draft that carries the residue upward and traps it in filters. I doubt that it will give us any trouble. But you ignore my question, sir. D.G. wadded what was left of his napkin and placed it on the arm of the chair. A robot, in response to Gladia's quick and unobtrusive gesture, removed it. D.G. said, I don't intend to ignore your question, my lady. I am not trying to force you to be a Solarian. I merely point out that you were born on Solaria and spent your early decades there, and therefore you might reasonably be considered a Solarian, after a fashion at least. Do you know that Solaria has been abandoned? So I have heard, yes. Do you feel anything about that? I am an Auroran, and have been one for twenty decades. That is a non-sequitur. A what? She could make nothing of the last sound at all. 
It has no connection with my question. A non-sequitur, you mean? You said a nonsense quitter. D.G. smiled. Very well. Let's quit the nonsense. I ask you if you feel anything about the death of Solaria, and you tell me you are an Auroran. Do you maintain that is an answer? A born Auroran might feel badly at the death of a sister world. How do you feel about it? Gladia said icily, It doesn't matter. Why are you interested? I'll explain. We, I mean the traders of the settler worlds, are interested because there is business to be done, profits to be made, and a world to be gained. Solaria is already terraformed. It is a comfortable world. You spacers seem to have no need or desire for it. Why should we not settle it? Because it's not yours. Madam, is it yours that you object? Has Aurora any more claim to it than Bailey World has? Can't we suppose that an empty world belongs to whoever is pleased to settle it? Have you settled it? No, because it's not empty. Do you mean the Salarians have not entirely left? Gladius said quickly. D.G.'s smile returned and broadened into a grin. You're excited at the thought, even though you're an Auroran. Gladius' face twisted into a frown at once. Answer my question. D.G. shrugged. There were only some 5,000 Salarians on the world just before it was abandoned, according to our best estimates. The population had been declining for years. But even 5,000. Can we be sure that all are gone? However, that's not the point. Even if the Salarians were indeed all gone, the planet would not be empty. There are, upon it, some 200 million or more robots, masterless robots, some of them among the most advanced in the galaxy. Presumably, those Salarians who left took some robots with them. It's hard to imagine spacers doing without robots altogether. He looked about, smiling at the robots in their niches within the room. However, they can't possibly have taken 40,000 robots apiece. Gladius said, Well, then, since your settler worlds are so purely robot-free and wish to stay so, I presume you can't settle Solaria. That's right. Not until the robots are gone. And that is where traders such as myself come in. In what way? We don't want a robot society, but we don't mind touching robots and dealing with them in the way of business. We don't have a superstitious fear of the things. We just know that a robot society is bound to decay. The spacers have carefully made that plain to us by example. So that while we don't want to live with this robot, we are going to sell it to spacers for a substantial sum, if they are so foolish as to want such a society. Do you think the spacers will buy them? I'm sure they will. They will welcome the elegant modes that the Solarians manufacture. It's well known that they were the leading robot designers in the galaxy, even though the late Dr. Fastolf is said to have been unparalleled in the field, despite the fact that he was an Auroran. Besides, even though we would charge a substantial sum, that sum would still be considerably less than the robots are worth. Spacers and traders would both profit. The Secret of Successful Trade The Spacers wouldn't buy robots from settlers, said Gladia with evident contempt. D.G. had a trader's way of ignoring such non-essentials as anger or contempt. It was business that counted. He said, of course they would. Offer them advanced robots at half price and why should they turn them down? Where business is to be done, you would be surprised how unimportant questions of ideology become. I think you'll be the one to be surprised. Try to sell your robots and you'll see. 
Would that I could, my lady. Try to sell them, that is. I have none on hand. Why not? Because none have been collected. Two separate trading vessels have landed on Solaria, each capable of storing some twenty-five robots. Had they succeeded, whole fleets of trading vessels would have followed them, and I dare say we would have continued to do business for decades, and then have settled the world. But they didn't succeed. Why not? Because both ships were destroyed on the surface of the planet, and, as far as we can tell, all the crewmen are dead. Equipment failure? Nonsense. Both landed safely. They were not wrecked. Their last reports were that spacers were approaching. Whether Solarians or natives of other spacer worlds, we don't know. We can only assume that the spacers attacked without warning. That's impossible, is it? Of course it's impossible. What would be the motive? To keep us off the world, I would say. If they wished to do that, said Gladia, they would merely have had to announce that the world was occupied. They might find it more pleasant to kill a few settlers. At least, that's what many of our people think, and there is pressure to settle the matter by sending a few warships to Solaria and establishing a military base on the planet. That would be dangerous. Certainly. It could lead to war. Some of our fire-eaters look forward to that. Perhaps some spacers look forward to that, too, and have destroyed the two ships merely to provoke hostilities. Gladius sat there amazed. There had been no hint of strained relations between spacers and settlers on any of the news programs. She said, Surely it's possible to discuss the matter. Have your people approached the Spacer Federation? A thoroughly unimportant body, but we have. We've also approached the Auroran Council. And? The spacers deny everything. They suggest that the potential profits in the Solarian robot trade are so high that traders, who are interested only in money, as though they themselves are not, would fight each other over the matter. Apparently they would have us believe the two ships destroyed each other, each hoping to monopolize the trade for their own world. The two ships were from two different worlds, then? Yes. Don't you think, then, that there might indeed have been a fight between them? I don't think it's likely, but I will admit it's possible. There have been no outright conflicts between the settler worlds, but there have been some pretty strenuous disputes. All have been settled through arbitration by Earth. Still, it is indeed a fact that the settler worlds might, in a pinch, not hang together when multi-billion dollar trade is at stake. That's why war is not such a good idea for us, and why something will have to be done to discourage the hotheads. That's where we come in. We... You and I. I have been asked to go to Solaria and find out, if I can, what really happened. I will take one ship, armed, but not heavily armed. You might be destroyed, too. Possibly. But my ship, at least, won't be caught unprepared. Besides, I am not one of those hypervision heroes, and I have considered what I might do to lessen the chances of destruction. It occurred to me that one of the disadvantages of settler penetration of Solaria is that we don't know the world at all. It might be useful, then, to take someone who knows the world. A Solarian, in short. You mean you want to take me? Right, my lady. Why me? I should think you could see that without explanation, my lady. Those Solarians who have left the planet are gone we know not where. If any Solarians are left on the planet, they are very likely the enemy. There are no known Solarian-born spacers living on some spacer planet other than Solaria, except yourself. You are the only Solarian available to me, the only one in all the galaxy. 
That's why I must have you, and that's why you must come. You're wrong, settler. If I am the only one available to you, then you have no one who is available. I do not intend to come with you, and there is no way, absolutely no way, that you can force me to come with you. I am surrounded by my robots. Take one step in my direction, and you will be immobilized at once. And if you struggle, you will be hurt. I intend no force. You must come of your own accord, and you should be willing to. It's a matter of preventing war. That is the job of governments on your side and mine. I refuse to have anything to do with it. I am a private citizen. You owe it to your world. We might suffer in case of war, but so will Aurora. I am not one of those hypervision heroes any more than you are. You owe it to me, then. You're mad. I owe you nothing. D.G. smiled narrowly. You owe me nothing as an individual. You owe me a great deal as a descendant of Elijah Bailey. Gladia froze and remained staring at the bearded monster for a long moment. How did she come to forget who he was? With difficulty, she finally muttered, No. Yes, said D.G. forcefully. On two different occasions, the ancestor did more for you than you can ever repay. He is no longer here to call in the debt, a small part of the debt. I inherit the right to do so. Gladia said in despair, But what can I do for you if I come with you? We'll find out. Will you come? Desperately, Gladia wanted to refuse. But was it for this that Elijah had suddenly become part of her life once more in the last twenty-four hours? Was it so that when this impossible demand was made upon her, it would be in his name and she would find it impossible to refuse? She said, What's the use? The council will not let me go with you. They will not have an Auroran taken away on a settler's vessel. My lady, you have been here on Aurora for twenty decades, so you think the Auroran-born consider you an Auroran. It's not so. To them you are a Salarian still. They'll let you go. They won't, said Gladia, her heart pounding, and the skin of her upper arms turning to goose flesh. He was right. She thought of Amadero, who would surely think of her as nothing but a Salarian. Nevertheless, she repeated, they won't, trying to reassure herself. They will, retorted D.G. Didn't someone from your council come to you to ask you to see me? She said defiantly, he asked me only to report on this conversation we have had, and I will do so. If they wanted you to spy on me here in your own home, my lady, they will find it even more useful to have you spy on me on Solaria. He waited for a response, and when there was none, he said with a trace of weariness, My lady, if you refuse, I won't force you, because I won't have to. They will force you. But I don't want that. The ancestor would not want it if he were here. He would want you to come with me out of gratitude for him and for no other reason. My lady, the ancestor labored on your behalf under conditions of extreme difficulty. Won't you labor on behalf of his memory? Gladia's heart sank. She knew she could not resist that. She said, I can't go anywhere without robots. I wouldn't expect you to. D.G. was grinning again. Why not take my two namesakes? Do you need more? Gladia looked toward Daniil, but he was standing motionless. She looked toward Giscard, the same. And then it seemed to her that, for just a moment, his head moved, 
very slightly, up and down. She had to trust him. She said, Well, then I'll come with you. These two robots are all I will need. Part 2. Celeria. Chapter 5. The Abandoned World. 14. For the fifth time in her life, Gladia found herself on a spaceship. She did not remember offhand exactly how long ago it had been that she and Centerix had gone together to the world of Euterp because its rainforests were widely recognized as incomparable, especially under the romantic glow of its bright satellite, Gemstone. The rainforest had indeed been lush and green, with the trees carefully planted in rank and file, and the animal life thoughtfully selected so as to provide color and delight, while avoiding venomous or other unpleasant creatures. The satellite, fully 150 kilometers in diameter, was close enough to Euterp to shine like a brilliant dot of sparkling light. It was so close to the planet that one could see it sweep west to east across the sky, outstripping the planet's slower rotational motion. It brightened as it rose toward zenith and dimmed as it dropped toward the horizon again. One watched it with fascination the first night with less, the second, and with a vague discontent, the third, assuming the sky was clear on those nights, which it usually wasn't. The native Euterpans, she noted, never looked at it, though they praised it loudly to the tourists, of course. On the whole, Gladia had enjoyed the trip well enough, but what she remembered most keenly was the joy of her return to Aurora and her decision not to travel again, except under dire need. Come to think of it, it had to be at least eight decades ago. For a while, she had lived with the uneasy fear that her husband would insist on another trip, but he never mentioned one. It might well be, she sometimes thought at that time, that he had come to the same decision she had and feared she might be the one to want to travel. It didn't make them unusual to avoid trips. Aurorans generally, spacers generally, for that matter, tended to be stay-at-homes. Their worlds, their establishments were too comfortable. After all, what pleasure could be greater than that of being taken care of by your own robots, robots who knew your every signal, and, for that matter, knew your ways and desires, even without being told? She stirred uneasily. Was that what D.G. had meant when he spoke of the decadence of a roboticized society? But now she was back again in space, after all that time, and on an Earth ship, too. She hadn't seen much of it, but the little she had glimpsed made her terribly uneasy. It seemed to be nothing but straight lines, sharp angles, and smooth surfaces. Everything that wasn't stark had been eliminated, apparently. It was as though nothing must exist but functionality. Even though she didn't know what was exactly functional about any particular object on the ship, she felt it to be all that was required, that nothing was to be allowed to interfere with taking the shortest distance between two points. On everything Auroran, on everything Spacer, one might almost say, though Aurora was the most advanced in that respect, everything existed in layers. Functionality was at the bottom. One could not entirely rid oneself of that, except in what was pure ornament. But overlying that, there was always something to satisfy the eyes and the senses generally, and overlying that, something to satisfy the spirit. How much better that was. Or did it represent such an exuberance of human creativity that spacers could no longer live with the unadorned universe? 
And was that bad? Was the future to belong to these from here to their geometrizers? Or was it just that the settlers had not yet learned the sweetnesses of life? But then if life had so many sweetnesses to it, why had she found so few for herself? She had nothing really to do on board this ship but to ponder and reponder such questions. This D.G., this Elijah-descended barbarian, had put it into her head with his calm assumption that the spacer worlds were dying, even though he could see all about him, even during the shortest stay on Aurora, surely he would have to, that it was deeply embedded in wealth and security. She had tried to escape her own thoughts by staring at the holofilms she had been supplied with and watching with moderate curiosity the images flickering and capering on the projection surface as the adventure story, all were adventure stories, hastened from event to event with little time left for conversation and none for thought or enjoyment either. Very like their furniture. D.G. stepped in when she was in the middle of one of the films but had stopped really paying attention. She was not caught by surprise. Her robots, who guarded her doorway, signaled his coming in ample time and would not have allowed him to enter if she were not in a position to receive him. Daniil entered with him. D.G. said, How are you doing? Then, as her hand touched a contact and the images faded, shriveled, and were gone, he said, You don't have to turn it off. I'll watch it with you. That's not necessary, she said. I've had enough. Are you comfortable? Not entirely. I am isolated. Sorry, but then I was isolated on Aurora. They would allow none of my men to come with me. Are you having your revenge? Not at all. For one thing, I allowed you two robots of your choice to accompany you. For another, it is not I, but my crew who enforce this. They don't like either spacers or robots. But why do you mind? Doesn't this isolation lessen your fear of infection? Gladia's eyes were haughty, but her voice sounded weary. I wonder if I haven't grown too old to fear infection. In many ways, I think I have lived long enough. Then, too, I have my gloves, my nose filters, and, if necessary, my mask. And besides, I doubt that you will trouble to touch me. Nor will anyone else said D.G. with a sudden edge of grimness to his voice as his hand wandered to the object at the right side of his hip. Her eyes followed the motion. What is that? she asked. D.G. smiled and his beard seemed to glitter in the light. There were occasional reddish hairs among the brown. A weapon, he said and drew it. He held it by a molded hilt that bulged above his hand as though the force of his grip were squeezing it upward. In front, Facing Gladia, a thin cylinder stretched some fifteen centimeters forward. There was no opening visible. Does that kill people? Gladia extended her hand toward it. D.G. moved it quickly away. Never reach for someone's weapon, my lady. That is worse than bad manners, for any settler is trained to react violently to such a move, and you may be hurt. Gladia, eyes wide, withdrew her hand and placed both behind her back. She said, Don't threaten harm. Daniil has no sense of humor in that respect. On Aurora, no one is barbarous enough to carry weapons. Well, said D.G., unmoved by the adjective, we don't have robots to protect us. And this is not a killing device. It is in some ways worse. 
It emits a kind of vibration that stimulates those nerve endings responsible for the sensation of pain. It hurts a good deal worse than anything you can imagine. No one would willingly endure it twice, and someone carrying this weapon rarely has to use it. We call it a neuronic whip. Gladia frowned. Disgusting. We have our robots, but they never hurt anyone except in unavoidable emergency, and then minimally. D.G. shrugged. That sounds very civilized, but a bit of pain, a bit of killing even, is better than the decay of spirit brought about by robots. Besides, a neuronic whip is not intended to kill, and your people have weapons on their spaceships that can bring about wholesale death and destruction. That's because we fought wars early in our history, when our Earth heritage was still strong. But we've learned better. You use those weapons on Earth, even after you supposedly learn better. That's... She began and closed her mouth as though to bite off what she was about to say next. D.G. nodded. I know. You were about to say that's different. Think of that, my lady, if you should catch yourself wondering why my crew doesn't like spacers, or why I don't. But you are going to be useful to me, my lady, and I won't let my emotions get in the way. How am I going to be useful to you? You are a Solarian. You keep saying that. More than twenty decades have passed. I don't know what Solaria is like now. I know nothing about it. What was Bailey World like twenty decades ago? It didn't exist twenty decades ago, but Solaria did, and I shall gamble that you will remember something useful. He stood up, bowed his head briefly in a gesture of politeness that was almost mocking, and was gone. Fifteen. Gladia maintained a thoughtful and troubled silence for a while, and then she said, He wasn't at all polite, was he? Daniil said, Madam Gladia, the settler is clearly under tension. He is heading toward a world on which two ships like his have been destroyed and their crews killed. He is going into great danger, as is his crew. You always defend any human being, Daniil, said Gladia resentfully. The danger exists for me, too, and I am not facing it voluntarily, but that does not force me into rudeness. Daniil said nothing. Gladia said, Well, maybe it does. I have been a little rude, haven't I? I don't think the settler minded, said Daniil. Might I suggest, madam, that you prepare yourself for bed? It is quite late. Very well. I'll prepare myself for bed, but I don't think I feel relaxed enough to sleep, Daniil. Friend Giscard assures me you will, madam, and he is usually right about such things. And she did sleep. Sixteen. Daniil and Giscard stood in the darkness of Gladia's cabin. Giscard said, She will sleep soundly, friend Daniil, and she needs the rest. She faces a dangerous trip. It seemed to me, friend Giscard, said Daniil, that you influenced her to agree to go. I presume you had a reason. Friend Daniil, we know so little about the nature of the crisis that is now facing the galaxy that we cannot safely refuse any action that might increase our knowledge. We must know what is taking place on Zelaria, and the only way we can do so is to go there. And the only way we can go is for us to arrange for Madame Gladia to go. As for influencing her, that required scarcely a touch. Despite her loud statements to the contrary, she was eager to go. 
There was an overwhelming desire within her to see Solaria. It was a pain within her that would not cease until she went. Since you say so, it is so. Yet I find it puzzling. Had she not frequently made it plain that her life on Solaria was unhappy, that she had completely adopted Aurora and never wished to go back to her original home? Yes, that was there, too. It was quite plainly in her mind. Both emotions, both feelings, existed together and simultaneously. I have observed something of this sort in human minds frequently. Two opposite emotions simultaneously present. Such a condition does not seem logical, Fringiscard. I agree, and I can only conclude that human beings are not, at all times or in all respects, logical. That must be one reason that it is so difficult to work out the laws governing human behavior. In Madame Gladia's case, I have now and then been aware of this longing for Solaria. Ordinarily, it was well hidden, obscured by the far more intense antipathy she also felt for the world. When the news arrived that Solaria had been abandoned by its people, however, her feelings changed. Why so? What had the abandonment to do with the youthful experiences that led Madame Gladia to her antipathy? Or, having held in restraint her longing for the world during the decades when it was a working society, why should she lose that restraint once it became an abandoned planet and newly long for a world which must now be something utterly strange to her? I cannot explain, friend Daniel. Since the more knowledge I gather of the human mind, the more despair I feel at being unable to understand it. It is not an unalloyed advantage to see into that mind, and I often envy you the simplicity of behavior control that results from your inability to see below the surface. Daniil persisted. Have you guessed an explanation, Fringiscard? I suppose she feels a sorrow for the empty planet. She deserted it twenty decades ago. She was driven out. It seems to her now to have been a desertion, and I imagine she plays with a painful thought that she had set an example, that if she had not left, no one else would have, and the planet would still be populated and happy. Since I cannot read her thoughts, I am only groping backward, perhaps inaccurately, from her emotions. But she could not have set an example, Frengiscard, since it is twenty decades since she left. There can be no verifiable causal connection between the much earlier event and the much later one. I agree. But human beings sometimes find a kind of pleasure in nursing painful emotions, in blaming themselves without reason or even against reason. In any case, Madame Gladia felt so sharply the longing to return that I felt it was necessary to release the inhibitory effect that kept her from agreeing to go. It required the merest touch. Yet, though I feel it necessary for her to go, since that means she will take us there, I have the uneasy feeling that the disadvantages might just possibly be greater than the advantages. In what way, Frengiscard? Since the Council was eager to have Madame Gladia accompany the settler, it may have been for the purpose of having Madame Gladia absent from Aurora during a crucial period, when the defeat of Earth and its settler worlds is being prepared. Daniil seemed to be considering that statement. At least it was only after a distinct pause that he said, What purpose would be served, in your opinion, in having Madame Gladia absent? I cannot decide that, friend Daniil. I want your opinion. I have not considered this matter. 
Consider it now. If Giscard had been human, the remark would have been in order. There was an even longer pause, and then Daniel said, Friend Giscard, until the moment that Dr. Mandamus appeared in Madame Gladius' establishment, she had never shown any concern about international affairs. She was a friend of Dr. Fastoff and of Elijah Bailey, but this friendship was one of personal affection and did not have an ideological basis. Both of them, moreover, are now gone from us. She has an antipathy toward Dr. Amadiro, and that is returned, but this is also a personal matter. The antipathy is two centuries old, and neither has done anything material about it, but have merely each remained stubbornly antipathetic. There can be no reason for Dr. Amadiro, who is now the dominant influence in the council, to fear Madame Gladia, or to go to the trouble of removing her. Giscard said, You overlook the fact that in removing Madame Gladia, he also removes you and me. He would perhaps feel quite certain Madame Gladia would not leave without us, so can it be us he considers dangerous? In the course of our existence, friend Giscard, we have never in any way given any appearance of having endangered Dr. Amadero. What cause has he to fear us? He does not know of your abilities or of how you have made use of them. Why, then, should he take the trouble to remove us temporarily from Aurora? Temporarily, friend Daniil? Why do you assume it is a temporary removal he plans? He knows, it may be, more than the settler does of the trouble on Solaria, and knows also that the settler and his crew will be surely destroyed, and Madame Gladia and you and I with them. Perhaps the destruction of the settler's ship is his main aim, but he would consider the end of Dr. Fastoff's friend and Dr. Fastoff's robots to be an added bonus. Daniil said, Surely he would not risk war with the settler worlds, for that may well come if the settler's ship is destroyed, and the minute pleasure of having us destroyed when added in would not make the risk worthwhile. Is it not possible, friend Daniil, that war is exactly what Dr. Amadero has in mind, that it involves no risk in his estimation, so that getting rid of us at the same time adds to his pleasure, without increasing a risk that does not exist? Daniil said calmly, Friend Giscard, that is not reasonable. In any war fought under present conditions, the settlers would win. They are better suited psychologically to the rigors of war. They are more scattered and can, therefore, more successfully carry on hit-and-run tactics. They have comparatively little to lose in their relatively primitive worlds, while the spacers have much to lose in their comfortable, highly organized ones. If the settlers were willing to offer to exchange destruction of one of their worlds for one of the spacers, the spacers would have to surrender at once. But would such a war be fought under present conditions? What if the spacers had a new weapon that could be used to defeat the settlers quickly? Might that not be the very crisis we are now facing? In that case, Fringisgard, the victory could be better and more effectively gained in a surprise attack. Why go to the trouble of instigating a war, which the settlers might begin by a surprise raid on spacer worlds that would do considerable damage? Perhaps the spacers need to test the weapon, and the destruction of a series of ships on Solaria represents the testing. The spacers would have been most uningenious if they could not have found a method of testing that would not give away the new weapon's existence. 
It was now Giscard's turn to consider. Very well, then, friend Daniel. How would you explain this trip we are on? How would you explain the Council's willingness, even eagerness, to have us accompany the settler? The settler said they would order Gladio to go, and, in effect, they did. I have not considered the matter, Fringiscard. Then consider it now. Again, it had the flavor of an order. Daniil said, I will do so. There was silence, one that grew protracted, but Giscard by no word or sign showed any impatience as he waited. Finally, Daniil said, slowly as though he were feeling his way along strange avenues of thought, I do not think that Bailey World, or any of the settler worlds, has a clear right to appropriate robotic property on Solaria. Even though the Solarians have themselves left, or have perhaps died out, Solaria remains a spacer world, even if an unoccupied one. Certainly the remaining forty-nine spacer worlds would reason so. Most of all, Aurora would reason so, if it felt in command of the situation. Giscard considered that. Are you now saying, friend Daniil, that the destruction of the two settler ships was the spacer way of enforcing their proprietorship of Solaria? Daniil said, No, that would not be the way if Aurora, the leading spacer power, felt in command of the situation. Aurora would then simply have announced that Solaria, empty or not, was off-limits to settler vessels— and would have threatened reprisals against the home worlds if any settler vessel entered the Solarian planetary system, and they would have established a cordon of ships and sensory stations around that planetary system. There was no such warning, no such action, Frengisgard. Why, then, destroy ships that might have been kept away from the world quite easily in the first place? But the ships were destroyed, friend Daniel. Will you make use of the basic illogicality of the human mind as an explanation? Not unless I have to. Let us for the moment take that destruction simply as given. Now consider the consequence. The captain of a single settler vessel approaches Aurora, demands permission to discuss the situation with the Council, insists on taking an Auroran citizen with him to investigate events on Solaria, and the Council gives in to everything. If destroying the ships without prior warning is too strong an action for Aurora, giving in to the settler captain so cravenly is far too weak an action. Far from seeking a war, Aurora, in giving in, seems to be willing to do anything at all to ward off the possibility of war. Yes, said Giscard, I see that this is a possible way of interpreting events, but what follows? It seems to me, said Daniil, that the spacer worlds are not yet so weak that they must behave with such servility, and, even if they were, the pride of centuries of overlordship would keep them from doing so. It must be something other than weakness that is driving them. I have pointed out that they cannot be deliberately instigating a war, so it is much more likely that they are playing for time. To what end, friend Daniil? They want to destroy the settlers, but they are not yet prepared. They let this settler have what he wants to avoid a war until they are ready to fight one on their own terms. I am only surprised that they did not offer to send an Auroran warship with him. If this analysis is correct, and I think it is, 
Aurora cannot possibly have had anything to do with the incident on Solaria. They would not indulge in pinpricks that could only serve to alert the settlers before they are ready with something devastating. Then how account for these pinpricks, as you call them, friend Anil? We will find out perhaps when we land on Solaria. It may be that Aurora is as curious as we are, and the settlers are, and that that is another reason why they have cooperated with the captain, even to the point of allowing Madame Gladia to accompany him. It was now Giscard's turn to remain silent. Finally, he said, And what is this mysterious devastation that they plan? Earlier we spoke of a crisis arising from the Spacer plan to defeat Earth, but we used Earth in its general sense, implying the Earth people together with their descendants on the settler worlds. However, if we seriously suspect the preparation of a devastating blow that will allow the Spacers to defeat their enemies at a stroke, we can perhaps refine our view. Thus, they cannot be planning a blow at a settler world. Individually, the settler worlds are dispensable, and the remaining settler worlds will promptly strike back. Nor can they be planning a blow at several or at all the settler worlds. There are too many of them. They are too diffusely spread. It is not likely that all the strikes will succeed, and those settler worlds that survive will, in fury and despair, bring devastation upon the spacer worlds. You reason, then, friend Anil, that it will be a blow at Earth itself. Yes, friend Giscard. Earth contains the vast majority of the short-lived human beings. It is the perennial source of emigrants to the settler worlds and is the chief raw material for the founding of new ones. It is the revered homeland of all the settlers. If Earth were somehow destroyed, the settler movement might never recover. But would not the settler worlds then retaliate as strongly and as forcefully as they would if one of themselves were destroyed? That would seem to me to be inevitable. And to me, friend Giscard. Therefore, it seems to me that unless the spacer worlds have gone insane, the blow would have to be a subtle one, one for which the spacer worlds would seem to bear no responsibility. Why not such a subtle blow against the settler worlds, which hold most of the actual war potential of the Earth people? either because the spacers feel the blow against Earth would be more psychologically devastating, or because the nature of the blow is such that it would work only against Earth and not against the settler worlds. I suspect the latter, since Earth is a unique world and has a society that is not like that of any other world, settler or, for that matter, spacer. To summarize, then, friend Daniel, you come to the conclusion that the Spacers are planning a subtle blow against Earth that will destroy it without evidence of themselves as the cause, and one that would not work against any other world, and that they are not yet ready to launch that blow. Yes, friend Giscard, but they may soon be ready, and once they are ready, they will have to strike immediately. Any delay will increase the chance of some leak that will give them away. To deduce all this, friend Anil, from the small indications we have is most praiseworthy. Now tell me the nature of the blow. What is it, precisely, that the Spacers plan? I have come this far, friend Giscard, across very shaky ground, without being certain that my reasoning is entirely sound. But even if we suppose it is, I can go no further. I fear I do not know and cannot imagine what the nature of the blow might be. Giscard said... But we cannot take appropriate measures to counteract the blow and resolve the crisis until we know what its nature will be. 
If we must wait until the blow reveals itself by its results, it will then be too late to do anything. Daniil said, If any spacer knows the nature of the forthcoming event, it would be Amadero. Could you not force Amadero to announce it publicly and thus alert the settlers and make it unusable? I could not do that, friend Daniil, without virtually destroying his mind. I doubt that I could hold it together long enough to allow him to make the announcement. I could not do such a thing. Perhaps then, said Daniil, we may console ourselves with the thought that my reasoning is wrong, and that no blow against earth is being prepared. No, said Giscard. It is my feeling that you are right, and that we must simply wait. Helplessly. 17. Gladia waited, with an almost painful anticipation, for the conclusion of the final jump. They would then be close enough to Solaria to make out its sun as a disk. It would just be a disk, of course, a featureless circle of light, subdued to the point where it could be watched unblinkingly after that light had passed through the appropriate filter. Its appearance would not be unique. All the stars that carried among their planets a habitable world in the human sense had a long list of property requirements that ended by making them all resemble one another. They were all single stars, all not much larger or much smaller than the sun that shone on Earth, none too active or too old or too quiet or too young or too hot or too cool or too offbeat in chemical composition. All had sunspots and flares and prominences, and all looked just about the same to the eye. It took careful spectroheliography to work out the details that made each star unique. Nevertheless, when Gladia found herself staring at a circle of light that was absolutely nothing more than a circle of light to her, she found her eyes welling with tears. She had never given the sun a thought when she had lived on Solaria. It was just the eternal source of light and heat, rising and falling in a steady rhythm. When she had left Solaria, she had watched that sun disappear behind her with nothing but a feeling of thankfulness. She had no memory of it that she valued. Yet she was weeping silently. She was ashamed of herself for being so affected, for no reason that she could explain, but that didn't stop the weeping. She made a stronger effort when the signal light gleamed. It had to be D.G. at the door. No one else would approach her cabin. Daniil said, Is he to enter, madam? You seem emotionally moved. Yes, I'm emotionally moved, Daniil, but let him in. I imagine it won't come as a surprise to him. Yet it did. At least he entered with a smile on his bearded face, and that smile disappeared almost at once. He stepped back and said in a low voice, I will return later. Stay, said Gladia harshly. This is nothing, a silly reaction of the moment. She sniffed and dabbed angrily at her eyes. Why are you here? I wanted to discuss Solaria with you. If we succeed with a micro-adjustment, we'll land tomorrow. If you're not quite up to a discussion now. I am quite up to it. In fact, I have a question of you. Why is it we took three jumps to get here? One jump would have been sufficient. One was sufficient when I was taken from Solaria to Aurora twenty decades ago. Surely the technique of space travel has not retrogressed since. D.G.'s grin returned. Evasive action. If an Auroran ship was following us, I wanted to confuse it, shall we say. Why should one follow us? Just a thought, my lady. The Council was a little over-eager to help, I thought. 
They suggested that an Auroran ship join me in my expedition to Solaria. Well, it might have helped, mightn't it? Perhaps, if I were quite certain that Aurora wasn't behind all this. I told the Council quite plainly that I would do without, or rather, he pointed his finger at Gladia, just with you. Yet might not the Council send a ship to accompany me even against my wish, out of pure kindness of heart, let us say. Well, I still don't want one. I expect enough trouble without having to look nervously over my shoulder at every moment. So I made myself hard to follow. How much do you know about Solaria, my lady? Haven't I told you often enough? Nothing. Twenty decades have passed. Now, madam, I'm talking about the psychology of the Solarians. That can't have changed in merely twenty decades. Tell me why they have abandoned their planet. The story, as I've heard it, said Gladia calmly, is that their population had been steadily declining. A combination of premature deaths and very few births is apparently responsible. Does that sound reasonable to you? Of course it does. Births have always been few. Her face twisted in memory. Solarian custom does not make impregnation easy, either naturally, artificially, or ectogenetically. You never had children, madam? Not on Solaria. And the premature death? I can only guess. I suppose it arose out of a feeling of failure. Solaria was clearly not working out, even though the Solarians had placed a great deal of emotional fervor into their worlds having the ideal society, not only one that was better than Earth had ever had, but more nearly perfect than that of any other spacer world. Are you saying that Solaria was dying of the collective broken heart of its people? If you want to put it in that ridiculous way, said Gladia, displeased. D.G. shrugged. It seems to be what you're saying. But would they really leave? Where would they go? How would they live? I don't know. But, Madam Gladia, it is well known that Solarians are accustomed to enormous tracts of land, serviced by many thousands of robots, so that each Solarian is left in almost complete isolation. If they abandon Solaria, where can they go to find a society that would humor them in this fashion? Have they, in fact, gone to any of the other spacer worlds? Not as far as I know, but then I'm not in their confidence. Can they have found a new world for themselves? If so, it would be a raw one and require much in the way of terraforming. Would they be ready for that? Gladia shook her head. I don't know. Perhaps they haven't really left. Solaria, I understand, gives every evidence of being empty. What evidence is that? All interplanetary communication has ceased. All radiation from the planet, except that consistent with robot work, or clearly due to natural causes, has ceased. How do you know that? That is the report on the Aurora News. Ah, the report. Could it be that someone is lying? What would be the purpose of such a lie? Gladius stiffened at the suggestion. So that our ships would be lured to the world and destroyed. That's ridiculous, D.G. Her voice grew sharper. What would the spacers gain by destroying two trading vessels through so elaborate a subterfuge? Something has destroyed two settler vessels on a supposedly empty planet. How do you explain that? I can't. I presume we are going to Solaria in order to find an explanation. D.G. regarded her gravely. 
Would you be able to guide me to the section of the world that was yours when you lived on Solaria? My estate? She returned his stare, astonished. Wouldn't you like to see it again? Gladys' heart skipped a beat. Yes, I would, but why my place? The two ships that were destroyed landed in widely different spots on the planet, and yet each was destroyed fairly quickly. Though every spot may be deadly, it seems to me that yours might be less so than others. Why? Because there we might receive help from the robots. You would know them, wouldn't you? They do last more than twenty decades, I suppose. Daniel and Giscard have. And those that were there when you lived on your estate would still remember you, wouldn't they? They would treat you as their mistress and recognize the duty they owed you, even beyond that which they would owe to ordinary human beings. Gladius said, There were ten thousand robots on my estate. I knew perhaps three dozen by sight. Most of the rest I never saw, and they may not have ever seen me. Agricultural robots are not very advanced, you know, nor are forestry robots or mining robots. The household robots would still remember me, if they have not been sold or transferred since I left. Then, too, accidents happen, and some robots don't last twenty decades. Besides, whatever you may think of robot memory, human memory is fallible, and I might remember none of them. Even so, said D.G., can you direct me to your estate? By latitude and longitude? No. I have charts of Solaria. Would that help? Perhaps, approximately, it's in the south-central portion of the northern continent of Heliona. And once we're approximately there, can you make use of landmarks for greater precision, if we skim the Solarian surface? By sea coasts and rivers, you mean? Yes. I think I can. Good. And meanwhile, see if you can remember the names and appearances of any of your robots. It may prove the difference between living and dying. Eighteen. D.G. Bailey seemed a different person with his officers. The broad smile was not evident, nor the easy indifference to danger. He sat, poring over the charts, with a look of intense concentration on his face. He said, If the woman is correct, we've got the estate pinned down within narrow limits, and if we move into the flying mode, we should get it exactly before too long. Wasteful of energy, Captain muttered Jamon Oser, who was second in command. He was tall and, like D.G., well-bearded. The beard was russet-colored, as were his eyebrows, which arched over bright blue eyes. He looked rather old, but one got the impression that this was due to experience rather than years. Can't help it, said D.G. If we've had the anti-gravity that the technos keep promising us, just this side of eternity, it would be different. He stared at the chart again and said, she says it would be along this river about sixty kilometers upstream from where it runs into this larger one, if she is correct. You keep doubting it, said Chandras Nadirhaba, whose insignia showed him to be navigator and responsible for bringing the ship down in the correct spot, or, in any case, the indicated spot. His dark skin and neat mustache accentuated the handsome strength of his face. She's recalling a situation over a time gap of twenty decades, said D.G., what details would you remember of a site you haven't seen for just three decades? She's not a robot. She may have forgotten. Then what was the point of bringing her? muttered Oser. And the other one in the robot. It unsettles the crew, and I don't exactly like it either. D.G. looked up, eyebrows bunching together. He said in a low voice, 
It doesn't matter on this ship what you don't like or what the crew doesn't like, mister. I have the responsibility and I make the decisions. We're all liable to be dead within six hours of landing unless that woman can save us. Nadi Harbis said coolly, If we die, we die. We wouldn't be traitors if we didn't know that sudden death was the other side of big profits. And for this mission, we're all volunteers. Just the same, it doesn't hurt to know where the death's coming from, Captain. If you figured it out, does it have to be a secret? No, it doesn't. The Solarians are supposed to have left. But suppose a couple of hundred stayed quietly behind just to watch the store, so to speak. And what can they do to an armed ship, Captain? Do they have a secret weapon? Not so secret, said D.G. Solaria is littered with robots. That's the whole reason settler ships landed on the world in the first place. Each remaining Solarian might have a million robots at his disposal. An enormous army. Even Kalaya was in charge of communications. So far he had said nothing, aware as he was of his junior status, which seemed further marked by the fact that he was the only one of the four officers present without facial hair of any kind. Now he ventured a remark. Robots, he said, cannot injure human beings. So we are told, said D.G. dryly. But what do we know about robots? What we do know is that two ships have been destroyed, and about a hundred human beings, good settlers all, have been killed on widely separated parts of a world littered with robots. How could it have been done except by robots? We don't know what kind of orders a Solarian might give robots, or by what tricks the so-called first law of robotics might be circumvented. So we, he went on, have to do a little circumventing of our own. As best as we can tell from the reports reaching us from the other ships before they were destroyed, all the men on board ship debarked on landing. It was an empty world, after all, and they wanted to stretch their legs, breathe fresh air, and look over the robots they had come to get. Their ships were unprotected and they themselves unready when the attack came. That won't happen this time. I'm getting off, but the rest of you are going to stay on board the ship or in its near vicinity. Nadir Haba's dark eyes glared disapproval. Why you, Captain? If you need someone to act as bait, anyone else can be spared more easily than you can be. I appreciate the thought, Navigator, said D.G., but I will not be alone. Coming with me will be the Spacer Woman and her companions. She is the one who is essential. She may know some of the robots. At any rate, some may know her. I am hoping that, though the robots may have been ordered to attack us, they won't attack her. You mean they'll remember old Missy and fall to their knees, said Nadir Haba dryly. If you want to put it that way, that's why I brought her, and that's why we've landed on her estate. And I've got to be with her because I'm the one who knows her somewhat, and I've got to see that she behaves. Once we have survived by using her as a shield, and in that way have learned exactly what we're facing, we can proceed on our own. We won't need her anymore. Oser said, and then what do we do with her? Jettison her into space? D.G. roared, We take her back to Aurora. Oser said, I'm bound to tell you, Captain, that the crew would consider that a wasteful and unnecessary trip. They will feel that we can simply leave her on this blasted world. It's where she comes from, after all. Yes, said D.G. That will be the day, won't it, when I take orders from the crew? I'm sure you won't, said Oser. But the crew has its opinions, and an unhappy crew makes for a dangerous voyage. Chapter 6 The Crew 19 
Gladia stood on the soil of Solaria. She smelled the vegetation, not quite the odors of Aurora, and at once she crossed the gap of twenty decades. Nothing, she knew, could bring back associations in the way that odors could. Not sights, not sounds. Just that faint, unique smell brought back childhood. The freedom of running about, with a dozen robots watching her carefully. The excitement of seeing other children sometimes. Coming to a halt, staring shyly, approaching one another a half-step at a time, reaching out to touch, and then a robot saying, Enough, Miss Gladia and being led away, looking over the shoulder at the other child, with whom there was another set of attendant robots in charge. She remembered the day that she was told that only by holovision would she see other human beings thereafter. Viewing, she was told, not seeing. The robots said, seeing, as though it were a word they must not say, so that they had to whisper it. She could see them, but they were not human. It was not so bad at first. The images she could talk to were three-dimensional, free-moving. They could talk, run, turn cartwheels if they wished, but they could not be felt. And then she was told that she could actually see someone whom she had often viewed and whom she had liked. He was a grown man, quite a bit older than she was, though he looked quite young, as one did on Solaria. She would have permission to continue to see him, if she wished, whenever necessary she wished. She remembered how it was, exactly how it was on that first day. She was tongue-tied, and so was he. They circled each other, afraid to touch. But it was marriage. Of course it was. And then they met again, seeing, not viewing, because it was marriage. They would finally touch each other. They were supposed to. It was the most exciting day of her life. Until it took place. Seriously, Gladius stopped her thoughts. Of what used to go on? She so warm and eager. He so cold and withdrawn. He continued to be cold. When he came to see her at fixed intervals, for the rites that might or might not succeed in impregnating her, it was with such clear revulsion that she was soon longing for him to forget. But he was a man of duty, and he never forgot. Then came the time, years of dragging unhappiness later, when she found him dead, his skull crushed, and herself as the only possible suspect. Elijah Bailey had saved her then, and she had been taken away from Solaria and sent to Aurora. Now she was back, smelling Solaria. Nothing else was familiar. The house in the distance bore no resemblance to anything she remembered even faintly. In twenty decades it had been modified, torn down, rebuilt. She could not even gain any sense of familiarity with the ground itself. She found herself reaching backward to touch the settler ship that had brought her to this world that smelled like home, but was home in no other way, just to touch something that was familiar by comparison. Daniil, who stood next to her in the shadow of the ship, said, Do you see the robots, Madame Gladia? There were a group of them a hundred yards away, amid the trees of an orchard, watching solemnly, motionlessly, shining in the sun with a grayish, well-polished metal finish Gladia remembered Solarian robots to have. She said, I do, Daniil. Is there anything familiar about them, madam? Not at all. They seem to be new models. I can't remember them, and I'm sure they can't remember me. 
If D.G. was expecting anything hopeful to come of my supposed familiarity with the robots on my estate, he will have to be disappointed. Giscard said, They do not seem to be doing anything, madam. Gladius said, That is understandable. We're intruders, and they've come to observe us and to report on us in accordance with what must be standing orders. They have no one now to report to, however, and can merely silently observe. Without further orders, I presume they will do no more than that. But they won't cease doing so, either. Daniil said, It might be well, Madam Gladia, if we retired to our quarters on board ship. The captain is, I believe, supervising the construction of defenses, and is not ready to go exploring yet. I suspect he will not approve your having left your quarters without his specific permission. Gladia said haughtily, I'm not going to delay stepping out onto the surface of my own world just to suit his whim. I understand, but members of the crew are engaged in the vicinity, and I believe that some note your presence here. And are approaching, said Giscard. If you would avoid infection... I'm prepared, said Gladia. Nose plugs and gloves. Gladia did not understand the nature of the structures being put up on the flat ground about the ship. For the most part, the crewmen, absorbed in the construction, had not seen Gladia and her two companions, standing as they were in the shadows. It was the warm season on this portion of Solaria, which had a tendency to grow warmer, and on other occasions colder, than Aurora did, since the Solarian day was nearly six hours longer than the Auroran day. The crewmen approaching were five in number, and one of them, the tallest and largest, pointed in the direction of Gladia. The other four looked remained standing for a while as though merely curious, and then, at a gesture from the first, approached again, changing their angle slightly so as to head directly for the Auroran Three. Gladia watched them silently, and with her eyebrows raised in contempt. Daniil and Giscard waited impassively. Giscard said in a low voice to Daniil, I do not know where the captain is. I cannot distinguish him from the crowd of crewmen in whose midst he must be. Shall we retire? said Daniil aloud. That would be disgraceful, said Gladia. This is my world. She held her ground, and the five crewmen came closer in leisurely fashion. They had been working, doing hard physical labor, like robots, thought Gladia with disdain, and they were sweating. Gladia became aware of the odor that reeked from them. That would have served to force her away more than threats would, but she held her ground even so. The nose plugs, she was sure, mitigated the effect of the smell. The large crewman approached more closely than the others. His skin was bronzed. His bare arms glistened with moisture and with shining musculature. He might be thirty, as near as Gladia could judge the age of these short-lived beings, and if he were washed and properly dressed, he might prove quite presentable. He said, So, you are the spacer lady from Aurora that we've been carrying on our ship. He spoke rather slowly, obviously trying to attain an aristocratic tinge to his galactic. He failed, of course, and he spoke like a settler, even more crudely than D.G. did. Gladia said, establishing her territorial rights, I am from Solaria, settler, and stopped in confused embarrassment. She had spent so much time thinking of Solaria just now that twenty decades had dropped away and she had spoken with a thick Solarian accent. There was the broad A in Solaria and the rough R, while the I sounded horribly like Oi. 
She said again in a much lower, less commanding voice, but one in which the accent of Aurora University, the standard for galactic speech through all the spacer worlds, rang clear. I am from Solaria, Settler. The Settler laughed and turned to the others. She speaks la-di-da, but she had to try, right, mate? The others laughed, too, and one cried out, Get her to talk some more, Ness. Maybe we can all learn to talk like spacer birdies. And he placed one hand on his hip in as dainty a manner as he could manage, while holding the other hand out limply. Ness said, still smiling, Shut up, all of you. There was instant silence. He turned to Gladia again. I'm Berto Ness, first-class shipper. And your name, little woman? Gladia did not venture to speak again. Nis said, I'm being polite, little woman. I'm speaking gentlemanly, spacer-like. I know you're old enough to be my great-grandmother. How old are you, little woman? Four hundred, shouted one of the crewmen from behind Nis. But she doesn't look it. She doesn't look one hundred, said another. She looks suitable for a little ding-donging, said a third, and hasn't had any for a long time, I guess. Ask her if she'd want some, Ness. Be polite and ask if we can take turns. Gladia flushed angrily, and Daniil said, First-class shipper Ness, your companions are offending, Madam Gladia. Would you retire? Ness turned to look at Daniil, whom till now he had totally ignored. The smile vanished from his face, and he said, Look, you. This little lady is off limits. The captain said so. We won't bother her. Just a little harmless talk. That thing there is a robot. We won't bother with him, and he can't hurt us. We know the three laws of robotics. We order him to stay away from us, see? But you are a spacer, and the captain has given us no orders about you. So you, he pointed a finger, stay out of this and don't interfere, or you'll get your pretty skin all bruised up, and then you might cry. Daniil said nothing. Nis nodded his head. Good. I like to see someone smart enough not to start anything he can't finish. He turned to Gladia. Now, little spacer woman, we will leave you alone, because the captain doesn't want you bothered. If one of the men here made a crude remark, that's only natural. Just shake hands and let's be friends. Spacer, settler, what's the difference? He thrust out his hand toward Gladia, who shrank away in horror. Daniil's hand moved outward in a flick that was almost too fast to see, and caught Nis's wrist. First-class shipper Nis, he said quietly, do not attempt to touch the lady. Nis looked down at his hand and at the fingers that enclosed his wrist firmly. He said in a low and menacing growl, You have to the count of three to let go. Daniil's hand fell away. He said, I must do as you say, for I do not wish to harm you, but I must protect the lady, and if she doesn't wish to be touched, as I believe she doesn't, I may be forced into a position where I must cause you pain. Please accept my assurance that I will do all I can to minimize that. One of the crewmen shouted joyously, Give it to him, Niss, he's a talker! Niss said, Look, Spacer, twice I told you to keep out and you touched me once. Now I tell you a third time, and that's it. Make a move, say a word, and I take you apart. This little woman is going to shake hands, that's all, friendly-like. Then we all go, fair enough. 
Gladius said in a low, choking voice. I won't be touched by him. Do what is necessary. Daniil said, Sir, with all due respect, the lady does not wish to be touched. I must ask you, all of you, to leave. Nis smiled, and one large arm moved as though to brush Daniil to one side, and to do it hard. Daniil's left arm flickered, and once again Nis was held by the wrist. Please go, sir, said Daniil. Nis's teeth continued to show, but he was no longer smiling. Violently he brought his arm up. Daniil's enclosing hand moved up for a short distance, slowed, and came to a halt. His face showed no strain. His hand moved down, dragging Nis's arm with it, and then, with a rapid twist, he bent Nis's arm behind the settler's broad back and held it there. Nis, who found himself unexpectedly with his back to Daniil, brought his other arm up and over his head, groping for Daniil's neck. His other wrist was seized and pulled down farther than it could easily go, and Nis grunted in clear misery. The other four crewmen, who had been watching in eager anticipation, remained in place now, motionless, silent, mouths open. Nis, staring at them, grunted, Help me! Daniil said, They will not help you, sir, for the captain's punishment will be all the worse if they try. I must ask you now to assure me that you will no longer trouble Madame Gladia, and that you will leave quietly, all of you. Otherwise I very much regret, first-class shipper, that I must pull your arms out of their socket. As he said that, he tightened his grip on either wrist, and Nis emitted a muffled grunt. My apologies, sir, said Daniil, but I am under the strictest orders. May I have your assurance? Nis kicked backward with sudden viciousness, but well before his heavy boot could make contact, Daniil had faded to one side and pulled him off balance. He went face down heavily. May I have your assurance, sir? said Daniil, now pulling gently at the two wrists, so that the crewman's arms lifted slightly up from the back. Nis howled and said, half incoherent, I give in, let go! Daniil let go at once and stepped back. Slowly and painfully, Nis rolled over, moving his arms slowly and rotating his wrists with a twisted grimace. Then, when his right arm moved near the holster he wore, he snatched clumsily at his side arm. Daniil's foot came down on his hand and pinned it to the ground. Don't do that, sir, or I may be forced to break one or more of the small bones in your hand. He bent down and extracted Nissa's blaster from its holster. Now stand up. Well, Mr. Niss, came another voice, do as you are told and stand up. D.G. Bailey was standing at their side, beard bristling, face slightly flushed, but his voice was dangerously calm. You four, he said. Hand me your sidearms, one at a time. Come on, move a little faster. One, two, three, four. Now, continue to stand there at attention. Sir, this to Daniil, give me that sidearm you are holding. Good. Five. And now, Mr. Niss, at attention. And he placed the blasters on the ground beside him. Nis stiffened to attention, eyes bloodshot, face contorted, in obvious pain. Would someone, said D.G., please say what has been going on? Captain, said Daniil quickly, Mr. Nis and I have had a playful altercation. 
no harm has been done. Mr. Niss, however, looks somewhat harmed, said D.G. No permanent harm, Captain, said Daniil. I see. Well, we'll get back to this later. Madam, he turned on his heel to address Gladia. I don't recall that I gave you permission to emerge from the ship. You will go back to your cabin with your two companions at once. I am captain here, and this is not Aurora. Do as I say. Daniil placed an apologetic hand on Gladia's elbow. Her chin lifted, but she turned and went up the gangplank and into the ship, Daniil at her side, Giscard following. D.G. then turned to the crewman. You five, he said, his voice never lifting from its flat calm. Come with me. We'll get to the bottom of this or of you. And he gestured to a petty officer to pick up the sidearms and take them away. Twenty. D.G. stared at the five grimly. He was in his own quarters, the only portion of the ship that had a semblance of size to it and the beginnings of an appearance of luxury. He said, pointing to each in turn, Now, this is the way we'll work it. You tell me exactly what happened, word for word, motion for motion. When you're finished, you tell me anything that was wrong or left out, then you the same, then you, and then I'll get to you, miss. I expect that you were all out of order, that you all did something unusually stupid that earned you all, but especially Nith, considerable humiliation. If, in your story, it would appear that you did nothing wrong and suffered no humiliation, then I'll know you're lying, especially as the spacer woman will surely tell me what happened, and I intend to believe every word she says. A lie will make matters worse for you than anything you've actually done. Now, he barked, start. The first crewman stumbled hastily through the story, and then the second, somewhat correcting, somewhat expanding, then the third and the fourth. D.G. listened, stony-faced, to the recital, then motioned Virgil Niss to one side. He spoke to the other four. And while Niss was getting his face rightly mashed into the dirt by the spacer, what were you four doing? Watching? Scared to move? All four of you against one man? One of the men broke the thickening silence to say, It all happened so quick, Captain. We were just getting set to move in, and then it was all over. And what were you getting ready to do, in case you did manage to get to move someday? Well, we were going to pull the spacer foreigner off our mate. Do you think you could have? This time no one offered to make a sound. D.G. leaned toward them. Now, Here's the situation. You had no business interfering with a foreigner, so you're fined one week's pay each. And now let's get something straight. If you tell what has happened to anyone else, in the crew or out, now or ever, whether drunk or sober, you'll be broken, every one of you, to apprentice shipper. It doesn't matter which one of you talks, you'll all four be broken, so keep an eye on each other. Now get to your assigned tasks, and if you cross me at any time during this voyage, if you so much as hiccup, against regulations. You'll be in the brig. The four left, mournful, hang dog, tight-lipped. Niss remained, a bruise developing on his face, his arms clearly in discomfort. D.G. regarded him with a threatening quiet, while Niss stared to the left, to the right, at his feet, everywhere but at the face of the captain. It was only when Niss's eyes, running out of evasion, caught the glare of the captain that D.G. said, well, 
You look very handsome, now that you have tangled with a sissy spacer half your size. Next time you better hide when one of them shows up. Yes, Captain, said Niss, miserably. Did you or did you not, Niss, hear me in my briefing, before we left Aurora, say that the spacer woman and her companions were on no account to be disturbed or spoken to? Captain, I only wanted a polite howdy-do. We was curious for a closer look. No harm meant. You meant no harm? You asked how old she was. Was that your business? Just curious. Wanted to know. One of you made a sexual suggestion. Not me, Captain. Someone else? Did you apologize for it? To a spacer? This sounded horrified. Certainly. You were going against my orders. I meant no harm, said Niss doggedly. You meant no harm to the man. He put his hand on me, Captain. I know he did. Why? Because he was ordering me around. And you wouldn't stand for it. Would you, Captain? All right, then. You didn't stand for it. You fell down for it, right on your face. How did that happen? I don't rightly know, Captain. He was fast. Like the camera was sped up, and he had a grip like iron. D.G. said, So he did. What did you expect, you idiot? He is iron. Captain? Niss, is it possible you don't know the story of Elijah Bailey? Niss rubbed his ear in embarrassment. I know he's your great-something-grandfather, Captain. Yes, everyone knows that from my name. Have you ever viewed his life story? I'm not a viewing man, Captain. Not on history. He shrugged, and as he did so, winced, and made as though to rub his shoulder, then decided he didn't quite dare do so. Did you ever hear of R. Daniil Olivar? Nis squeezed his brows together. He was Elijah Bailey's friend. Yes, he was. You do know something, then. Do you know what the R stands for in R. Daniil Olivar? It stands for robot, right? He was a robot friend. There was robots on Earth in them days. There were Nis, and still are. But Daniil wasn't just a robot. He was a spacer robot who looked like a spacer man. Think about it, Nis. Guess who the spacer man you picked a fight with really was? Nis's eyes widened, his face reddened dully. You mean that spacer was a ro that was R. Daniil Oliver. But, Captain, that was two hundred years ago. Yes, and the spacer woman was a particular friend of my ancestor Elijah. She's been alive for two hundred and thirty-three years, in case you still want to know. And do you think a robot can't do as well as that? You were trying to fight a robot, you great fool. Why didn't it say so? Nis said with great indignation. Why should it? Did you ask? See here, Nith, you heard what I told the others about telling this to anyone. It goes for you, too, but much more so. They are only crewmen, but I had my eye on you for crew leader. Had my eye on you. If you're going to be in charge of the crew, you've got to have brains and not just muscle. So now it's going to be harder for you, because you're going to have to prove you have brains, against my firm opinion that you don't. Captain, I don't talk. Listen. If this story gets out, the other four will be apprentice shippers, but you will be nothing. 
You will never go on shipboard again. No ship will take you. I promise you that. Not as crew, not as passenger. Ask yourself what kind of money you can make on Bailey World, and doing what. That's if you talk about this, or if you cross the spacer woman in any way, or even just look at her for more than half a second at a time, or at her two robots. And you are going to have to see to it that no one else among the crew is in the least offensive. You're responsible, and you're fined two weeks' pay. But, Captain, said Niss weakly, the others... I expected less from the others, Niss, so I find them less. Get out of here. Twenty-one. D.G. played idly with the photocube that always stood on his desk. Each time he turned it, it blackened, then cleared when stood upon one of its sides as its base. When it cleared, the smiling three-dimensional image of a woman's head could be seen. Crew rumor was that each of the six sides led to the appearance of a different woman. The rumor was quite correct. Jaminoser watched the flashing appearance and disappearance of images totally without interest. Now that the ship was secured, or as secured as it could be against attack of any expected variety, it was time to think of the next step. D.G., however, was approaching the matter obliquely, or perhaps not approaching it at all. He said, it was the woman's fault, of course. Oser shrugged and passed his hand over his beard, as though he were reassuring himself that he, at least, was not a woman. Unlike D.G., Oser had his upper lip luxuriantly covered as well. D.G. said, Apparently, being on the planet of her birth removed any thought of discretion. She left the ship, even though I had asked her not to. You might have ordered her not to. I don't know that that would have helped. She's a spoiled aristocrat, used to having her own way and to ordering her robots about. Besides, I plan to use her, and I want her cooperation, not her pouting. And, again, she was the ancestor's friend. And still alive, said Oser, shaking his head. It makes the skin crawl. An old, old woman. I know, but she looks quite young, still attractive, and nose in the air. Wouldn't retire when the crewman approached, wouldn't shake hands with one of them. Well, it's over. Still, Captain, was it the right thing to tell Ness he had tackled a robot? Had to. Had to, oh, sir, if he thought he'd been beaten and humiliated before four of his mates by an effeminate spacer half his size. He'd be useless to us forever. It would have broken him completely. And we don't want anything to happen that will start the rumor that spacers, that human spacers, are supermen. That's why I had to order them so strenuously not to talk about it. Niss will ride herd on all of them, and if it does get out, it will also get out that the spacer was a robot. But I suppose there was a good side to the whole thing. Where, Captain? asked Oser. It got me to thinking about robots. How much do we know about them? How much do you know? Oser shrugged. Captain, it's not something I think about much or something anyone else thinks about either, at least any settler. We know that the spacers have robots, depend on them, go nowhere without them, can't do a thing without them, are parasites on them, and we're sure they're fading away because of them. We know that Earth once had robots forced on them by the spacers, and that they are gradually disappearing from Earth, and are not found at all in Earth cities, only in the countryside. We know that the settler worlds don't and won't have them anywhere, town or country. So settlers never meet them on their own worlds, and hardly ever on Earth. His voice had a curious inflection, 
Each time he said, Earth, as though one could hear the capital, as though one could hear the words home and mother whispered behind it. What else do we know? Osher said, There's the three laws of robotics. Right. D.G. pushed the photocube to one side and leaned forward. Especially the first law. A robot may not injure a human being or, through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. Yes? Well, don't rely on it. It doesn't mean a thing. We all feel ourselves to be absolutely safe from robots because of that. And that's fine if it gives us confidence, but not if it gives us false confidence. Our Daniil injured Nis, and it didn't bother the robot at all, first law or no first law. He was defending, exactly. What if you must balance injuries? What if it was a case of either hurt Nis or allow your spacer owner to come to harm? Naturally, she comes first. It makes sense. Of course it does. And here we are on a planet of robots, a couple of hundred million of them. What orders do they have? How do they balance the conflict between different arms? How can we be sure that none of them will touch us? Something on this planet has destroyed two ships already. Osher said uneasily, This Ardeniel is an unusual robot. Looks more like a man than we do. It may be we can't generalize from him. That other robot, what's his name? Giscard, it's easy to remember. My name is Daniil Giscard. I think of you as Captain, Captain. Anyway, that R. Giscard just stood there and didn't do a thing. He looks like a robot, and he acts like one. We've got lots of robots out there on Solaria watching us right now, and they're not doing a thing either, just watching. And if there are some special robots that can harm us, I think we're prepared for them. Now we are. That's why the incident with Daniil and Nis was a good thing. We've been thinking that we can only be in trouble if some of the Solarians are still here. They don't have to be. They can be gone. It may be that the robots, or at least some specially designed robots, can be dangerous. And if Lady Gladia can mobilize her robots in this place, it used to be her estate, and make them defend her and us too, we may well be able to neutralize anything they've left behind. Can she do that? said Oser. We're going to see, said D.G. Twenty-two. Thank you, Daniil, Gladia said. You did well. Her face seemed pinched together, however. Her lips were thin and bloodless, her cheeks pale. Then, in a lower voice, I wish I had not come. Giscard said, It is a useless wish, Madame Gladia, Friend Daniil and I will remain outside the cabin to make sure you are not further disturbed. The corridor was empty and remained so, but Daniil and Giscard managed to speak in sound wave intensities below the human threshold, exchanging thoughts in their brief and condensed way. Giscard said, Madame Gladia made an injudicious decision in refusing to retire. That is clear. I presume, friend Giscard, said Daniil, that there was no possibility of maneuvering her into changing that decision. It was far too firm, friend Daniil, and taken too quickly. The same was true of the intention of Nis, the settler. Both his curiosity concerning Madame Gladia and his contempt and animosity toward you were too strong to manage without serious mental harm. 
The other four I could handle. It was quite possible to keep them from intervening. Their astonishment at your ability to handle this froze them naturally, and I had only to strengthen that slightly. That was fortunate, Fringisgard. Had those four joined Mr. Niss, I would have been faced with the difficult choice of forcing Madame Gladia into a humiliating retreat, or of badly damaging one or two of the settlers to frighten off the rest. I think I would have had to choose the former alternative, but it too would have caused me grave discomfort. You are well, friend Anil? Quite well. My damage to Mr. Niss was minimal. Physically, friend Anil, it was. Within his mind, however, there was great humiliation, which was to him much worse than the physical damage. Since I could sense that, I could not have done what you did so easily. And yet, friend Anil? Yes, friend Giscard. I am disturbed over the future. On Aurora, through all the decades of my existence, I have been able to work slowly, to wait for opportunities of touching minds gently without doing harm, of strengthening what is already there, of weakening what is already attenuated, of pushing gently in the direction of existing impulse. Now, however, we are coming to a time of crisis in which emotions will run high, decisions will be taken quickly, and events will race past us. If I am to do any good at all, I will have to act quickly, too, and the three laws of robotics prevent me from doing so. It takes time to weigh the subtleties of comparative physical and mental harm. Had I been alone with Madame Gladia at the time of the settler's approach, I do not see what course I could have taken that I would not have recognized as entailing serious damage to Madame Gladia, to one or more of the settlers, to myself, or possibly to all who were involved. Daniil said, What is there to do, Frangiscard? Since it is impossible to modify the three laws, friend Daniil, once again we must come to the conclusion that there is nothing we can do but await failure. <laughs>